Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Mizzou Sports Podcast, presented by the Columbia Daily Tribune. Another edition of the Mizzou Sports Podcast. My name is Eric Blum, breaking down Mizzou Sports with you every week here on the show. Joining me as always is the Tribune's Langston Newsom. How are you doing, Langston? Fantastic. Excited to be talking about an actual football game this afternoon. Yes. Uh, you and I, along with our editor Kevin Grayler, covered Missouri versus Alabama. Uh, I think both of us picked Missouri to cover but lose, and that's exactly what happened. Missouri got doubled up 38 to 19, as most of you probably already know listening to this, losing to the number one team in the country in the first game of the Eli Drinkwitz era. It was the first Mizzou football game you actually ever got to cover, Langston, from my estimation, first time you've ever been in the press box. Give yep. me your general thoughts. How did it go? What was the experience like? Um, It was interesting. It it was one of those times where when you ever, you're at a high school football game, just because you have to be taking stats and aware of everything, you're watching every single play. And in the press box at um, at Memorial Stadium, it's not really like that. You're riding, you're doing several different things. You've got the TV above you, which is about 10 to 15 seconds behind. So if you miss something and you hear the crowd cheer or anything like that, you can just look up. It wasn't. It was. It was less of actually watching the game than I expected, but that's in a good. It, it, I think that's good. Um, from just from a writing perspective, the amount of work I was able to get done during the game was so much more than I can do in prep sports. So that was just my initial takeaways from that. Yeah, I, I agree with you as a former prep writer. That's kind of the adjustment to be made. And I know that you don't know what it's like in a non-pandemic to sit in that press box, but it's usually crowded and sweaty, and especially like if it's if it's a early fall game where. You know, it, it, an early kind of fall game with like a 3.30 kickoff, that sunset with its sun coming right in your eyes is brutal. That happened a couple of times last year. The South Carolina game that happened, West Virginia game, the sun rose, that happened. That was, it was, it was, it's fun and it's a job. It, it's just inconvenient more so than anything else. But what, what were your overall thoughts about Missouri? How did they play? Was it more so their faults came because they were playing Alabama or there, were there actual things that they were bad at? Offensively, I think that Missouri is still trying to figure out who they are and what they want to be under Coach Nickwitz. And but defensively, going against Mac Jones and Jalen Waddle, I just think that it's just better talent, especially on the outside. That when you're starting a true freshman at quarterback, cornerback, there's really not much Drinkwitz and his staff could really do defensively. But offensively, there was a lot left to be desired in that 38 to 19 loss to Alabama. Yeah, I kind of agree there. I mean, you know, you thought one of Missouri's strongest units coming into the year was going to be their secondary. Um, and their secondary didn't play horribly, but you look at the pressure the defensive line got on Mac Jones, which was non-existent, gave him any, uh, just about enough time to throw the ball to Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell. I really do think Jalen Waddell might be the Blitnikoff winner this year. He's just on another level as a wide receiver. I mean, they attacked Ennis Rakestraw as a true freshman, and he held his own. But there's only so much you can do against a guy like Jalen Waddell. Like, one of the 
plays that doesn't stand out in highlights, but stood out to me is I think Alabama had a second and 21, second and 19 after a holding penalty. They threw a screen to Jalen Waddle, and he literally just ran around the defense and just fell at the first yard line to get to get to stop the clock. And that was that's just just next level awareness. I mean, very much in the line of Julio Jones, Henry Ruggs, you know, Amari Cooper, wide receivers who have came through that school. Jalen Waddle fits right in that group, and definitely, and just kind of piggybacking off of that. I mean, I looked over to uh, to you and Kevin in the, in the press box, and I was like, you know, Henry Ruggs and Jerry Judy. Who? It, it just seemed like Jalen Waddle is just the next in line. And I do like that you, know, you brought it up. It's defensively getting pressure with four just didn't happen. And so when Mac Jones has five six seconds to really kind of pick apart your defense, that's exactly what's going to happen. So there's only so much that the defensive backs for Missouri could actually do in that type of situation. The defensive pressure. Has to be better. Yeah, uh, and now switching kind of over to this week, uh, Missouri does play at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern, because Knoxville's right over the Eastern time zone border uh, it, against Tennessee, who did defeat South Carolina by four this past weekend. Game is on ESPN starting at you know either noon Eastern, but for most of you listening to this, it is 11 Central. I will most likely be at the game. Uh, you know, in, in any sense, I, I plan on being there, just pending, I guess, COVID or anything else that happens. Um, and so it'll be noon for me uh, with the eight and a half hour trip kind of, I guess, southeast to Knoxville. Uh, I haven't been there in five years, uh, but that, that was for a non-football reason. I've actually never seen a game at Tennessee before, but looking forward to seeing what a socially distant Neyland Stadium is right on, right on the Tennessee River with all the boats. And we had uh, Blake Topmeyer, former Tribune beat, Mizzou beat reporter, now covers the balls for the Knoxville News Sentinel and the USA Today Network. On our show, you'll listen to the interview I had with him a little bit later, but just... There might not be too many more stadiums you have to change more protocols in the country than Tennessee just based off of location and tradition and just the makeup of their stadium than them. I mean, it's just the the laundry list that they have to go through is even larger than what happened in Columbia. And Blake puts that in some great perspective. But, you you know, just looking from what I've seen of this Tennessee team, this is not a game like like Alabama, obviously, where Missouri is kind of like, well, if we look good, it's okay. You know, this is a very much a winnable game. I think I put the odds Missouri winning maybe at like 35 to 40 percent somewhere as opposed to like 2 percent as I had it at Alabama. And just, you know, Tennessee is good. And Tennessee, I think, is very much pegged in that third, fourth place line in the SEC where Missouri is probably fifth, sixth with South Carolina. But not too much has to go wrong for Tennessee to kind of unravel. And Missouri, knowing the makeup of this team, if they get on Jarrett Garantano early in that game, this could be an easy game for them. At the end of the day, this, it's a lot of the same makeup as last year, and Missouri made the mistakes that made them lose that game, the, the penultimate game of the 2019 season, essentially the game that ensured Barry Odom was going to be fired. Uh, just, you know, I don't think there's a much of a talent disparity between Tennessee and Missouri as there might seem. I still am picking Tennessee to probably win this game. That's what I picked. Uh, with my interview I did earlier this, week, earlier this week with the Knoxville News Sentinel, I picked it to be Tennessee 34, Missouri 30. Missouri covering on most spreads. I've seen up to 11 and a half, 12 points. Uh, but Tennessee, I think, is just clicking a little bit more at this point in the season, but it would not shock me at all to see the first one of the Eli Drinkwitz era come this weekend. And it would be interesting because if, if Missouri does win this weekend, Eli Drinkwitz in the second game would equal the same amount of road rank wins as Barry Odom had in his four years as Missouri's head coach. You know, it's something that you and I talked about in several pods in the lead-up to the season, but, you know, the 
the Alabama game was just like you said you wanted to look good um, you wanted to seem confident and seem organized against that game win lose or draw this is a game and now there's new expectations in my mind after the way that Mike Leach kind of carved up that LSU defense now they were out Derek Stanley due to a non-COVID-19 related illness in that game but there is a chance um, to really kind of go out and set the tone for the rest of the season against a, uh, against a good uh, Tennessee team ranked 20th right now in the AP poll um, and then kind of roll into Baton Rouge with some type of you know positive ener- energy and possibly an upset there in Death Valley so it's it's a complete change of fortunes going into this week as of going into Alabama kind of knowing you're going to get steamrolled yeah, we'll break down the SEC slate and all of that coming back from the break, but I think this is as good as of a chance of a transition as we've got. Here was my interview earlier today with Tennessee beat writer Blake Topmeyer. Joining the Mizzou Sports Podcast this time is the Tennessee football beat reporter for the Knoxville News Sentinel and USA Today Network and Columbia Daily Tribune alum. I can't forget that. Blake Topmeyer. How you doing, Blake? I'm doing well, Eric. Good. I feel like i got to get that local plug in anytime I can. But, <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, just, I guess we'll start there for this conversation about Missouri versus Tennessee. How does your time on the Mizzou beat compare to your time in Knoxville on the, on the Vols beat? Well... Um, the beat is a little bit bigger here in terms of number of reporters, but not not drastically different. I think that the biggest change in terms of a, a reporting perspective is like the average age of the reporter. Like there's more adult reporters that cover Tennessee, and you know, with Missouri, you got the the huge J school, so there's there's usually tons of student reporters milling about. In addition to the um, you know to the the folks that uh, that are doing this for a living and, and are where those students are headed. Um, in terms of the fan bases, you know, with Tennessee, the way I sometimes describe it to to folks back in the Midwest, because I'm a Midwest native, um, it's like, you know, if in Missouri you had the Cardinals – but then you took away everything else. Like you took away the blues, you took away the chiefs, you took away Mizzou, you just had the Cardinals. And so like as passionate as Cardinals fans are right now about the Cardinals, imagine if you took everything else away, you know, and there was just that one thing. And so in Tennessee, that's sort of the way it is. Like it's the Vols and there's, you know, there isn't, you know, a lot of Cardinal fans also root for the Blues or they root for Mizzou. Like, there, there's that 1A and 1B team that's on their radar. For a lot of Vols fans, it's Vols is 1A, and there's a massive gap toward whatever is 1B. You know, I mean, yes, there's the Titans, there's the Preds, um, but those teams don't really resonate outside of Nashville. A lot of people that live in Nashville aren't even Titans fans. Um, you know, the pro sports are still sort of new to Tennessee, whereas the Vols, um, you know, you got fans throughout the state. And, and like I said, it's just there, there's that huge gap in fandom between what they care about most and second most, whereas, you know, for fans in Missouri, it might be Tigers, Cardinals, Blues or Cardinals, Tigers, Blues. And there's a, there's that closer gap. Gotcha. Let's let's start with a broad update of kind of just the Tennessee Vols team this year. What is the, you know, the, the makeup of this 2020 volunteer? Well, it's a, a pretty veteran group at, at a lot of positions anyway. You know, eight starters back on, on each side of the ball. Um, you know, one of the most experienced quarterbacks in the conference and Jared Garantano, uh, a guy that certainly had his ups and his downs throughout his career. He, he had one of his best games against Missouri last year. 
uh, but he's had his struggles and, and, and there's been other times where he's been really good. Um, defensively, a lot remains to be seen there because although there's uh, a bunch of starters back, you have the three most important players from last year's defense are the three guys who are gone and Daniel Batuli, Nigel Warrior, and Daryl Taylor. So you know, it's kind of interesting, like, yes, veteran unit on defense, but also the three cogs from last year are gone. Offensively, uh, you know, it was interesting because I think the expectation coming into the season was that this would be dependent on its on its running game on its on its offensive line that returned all five starters and then in the season opener they passed 31 times and the record that moving forward i mean i do think offensive line groups in particular is a position group that often looks better in week five or six than in week one um but you know i think the story is still to be written on this this offense of is this truly going to be a, a run heavy offensive line dominant team uh or is that group going to be a little more mediocre than than a lot of us thought and, and it might depend on that passing game what did you see from the team last week against South Carolina that either you did expect, didn't expect, and poured to their favor against Missouri? Well, I think from a, a, the wide receiver position, there was a lot of question marks there because Tennessee lost Jawan Jennings and Marquez Callaway off last year's team. And, you know, they're, they're two leading receivers. I mean, Juwan Jennings was so huge for that offense last year. And so a lot of question marks at, at receiver coming into the season, I think, you felt good about the potential Tennessee had there, but you know, in terms of uh, of knowns, there weren't a lot of them. And then Saturday, that position group played really well. Uh, you know, there were multiple receivers: Josh Palmer, Valus Jones Jr., uh, Brandon Johnson, Ramel Keaton. All those guys played well, and so that was that was a pleasant surprise for Tennessee. Also, the outside linebacker position: um, guys like DeAndre Johnson and Kevon Bennett um, stepped up and and. Performed I think outperformed expectations on the downside. Maybe uh, I go back to that offensive line. I, I think there was, there was an expectation that could be a dominant group this year still could be. It was serviceable in week one, wasn't dominant. Uh, Jared Garantano remained inconsistent, had some big moments, played smart football, but he struggled with the consistency of his accuracy and defensively just a lot of breakdowns through the middle of the defense. Uh, South Carolina really had success passing over the middle of the field, kind of picked on uh, Tennessee's inside linebackers in pass coverage, picked on nickelback Danico Slaughter, who was starting in place of Sean Schamberger, who was unavailable for week one and is doubtful for this game against Missouri. So that'll be interesting to see whether Tennessee can get that cleaned up in the middle of its defense, because that was really something that allowed South Carolina to hang in that game was how much success they were having passing over the middle of the field. It, it appears that like maybe Tennessee is the trendy pick kind of to overreach expectations this year in the SEC East. Obviously, it's in the top two, Georgia, Florida, no matter how much you rank them. Do you think that this team has kind of turned a corner, reached another level uh, to where they're the clear third best team under Jeremy Pruitt in this division? Well, yeah, that's that'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, last season, that, that was big for Tennessee and, and where this program wants to go in at least getting to that third place spot in the East last year. You know, I think Tennessee wants to be able to consider itself in conversation with Georgia and Florida 
again. But I was saying entering last season, well, before you can start talking about being in a conversation with Georgia and Florida, you have to at least, you know, separate yourself from South Carolina, Kentucky, Missouri. And Tennessee last year did that. You know, they, they beat all the teams that on paper, you know, I felt like they were they were supposed to beat. They finished third in the East. And there was still that separation between the top two and Tennessee. And so now it's kind of a twofold question. Can they can they continue to be separated from from those other four teams in the East? But also, can they close any of that gap with Georgia and, and, and Florida? Because, you know, last season, even though Tennessee established itself as the third best team in the East, there was still a sizable gap between Tennessee and Georgia and Florida. Um, and so at the very least, you know, I think for Tennessee's program, for the future of its program, uh, it can't backslide this year. You know, they brought too much back. Um, it really, it would be a disappointing season if it, if it backslides further than third place in the East. Um, but I'm kind of wondering, will they be capable of doing anything more than that? You know, can they, can they close the gap at all between Georgia and, and Florida and where Tennessee is? If they close that gap, where do you think that would come from? And if they backslide, where do you think that would come from? Well, I think to close the gap, they have to be better at quarterback for starters this year than, than they were um, in previous seasons. I mean, it, with Garantano, it's it's interesting. You know, this guy is a 25-game starter, veteran. Um, I think the coaches feel comfortable in his understanding of the system and, and his, um, you know, keeping Tennessee mostly out of bad situations. But, you know, this is a guy that's been inconsistent throughout the course of his career. And, and unless he finds more consistency this season i don't know that tennessee is going to be able to to catch the top of the pack i mean georgia has quarterback issues of its own but you look at florida i mean they might have the best quarterback in the league and kyle trask and i I just don't see how tennessee closes that gap this season without getting better quarterback play um and and going forward i mean that's got to be a priority potential for backsliding is what happens with this defense you know tennessee closed last season on a six game winning streak and and so much of that was because the defense was just playing at a very high level um, throughout the back half of last season. I didn't see that level of performance uh, against South Carolina. Defense wasn't bad. It was okay, but it wasn't playing to the level it was at the end of last season. And, and if it can't reach uh, a higher level, you know, then I think this, this could be a, a tough season for Tennessee. You know, I mean, there's five top 25 opponents on this schedule. If this defense isn't able to touch a higher level, level you know this could be a five and five team we were asked to pick against the spread from the usa today network every week uh do you have a pick against the spread and if so what's your kind of game prediction for this game yeah i got tennessee 34 missouri 24 which i think would be uh, just barely yeah just barely uh, missouri covering covering there uh i think if i was a a gambling man which uh which i'm not at least on sports (laughs) i would probably stay away from this game because it feels like the the line is uh is a little too close for my comfort on on either side of things there but i if if forced to choose uh i would i would take uh the tigers uh to lose but to cover the spread so pretty much exactly like last week and this is part of a kind of a larger conversation i want to have with you is that i I think it was pointed out by bob hold on today's sec conference call that nick saban plays four straight former assistants at now as sec head coaches starting this week with jimbo fisher then pruitt 
Kirby and Lane Kiffin, not in that order, but just uh, how much of the conversations have you had with Jeremy Pruitt is he comes from that Saban system or is he kind of his own kind of man in that sense? I think he's sort of a meld between what Saban, I mean, look, I mean, Tennessee's not where either of these programs are that I'm going to talk about, but I think where he wants to be is sort of a meld between uh, what Saban's doing in Alabama and what Kirby is doing at Georgia. Uh, you know, Pruitt and, and Kirby were both on staff, on Saban's staff, uh, for a few years there together during uh, uh, Pruitt's first time with Alabama before he came back later. Uh, and, you know, there's there's always the comparisons to Alabama because he comes from the Saban tree. But I think, really, if you look at what Tennessee's trying to do with its its schemes and, and the way it sort of approaches its program right now, I actually think there's probably more of a direct comparison to what Georgia's doing in terms of schematically. Um, I, I think that's really where I see Tennessee headed. Um, and, and I guess to that point, um, you know, after Pruitt's first season he went and hired uh kirby's offensive coordinator and jim cheney you know he, he pulled uh, cheney away from that georgia staff and and hired him to be the offensive coordinator here at tennessee so i think that that sort of um backs that up in that you know i, I really see this tennessee program uh, maybe molding itself in in that georgia direction which is you know uh, uh an offense at least offensively um you know that that needs a good offensive line it needs a, a relevant running game it needs uh you know some some downfield passing um it's probably not going to be particularly up-tempoed you know and, that, and that's sort of what i see out of this this offense and then defensively you're going to see you know a, a combination of a three four or a nickel scheme um and and you know you've had some guys on this staff uh, that have worked with with Pruitt at Alabama or at Georgia or, or both, um, and and so that's that's sort of I guess he's kind of picking from from both trees, but I guess it's all sort of this the same larger tree, and, and then it all stems down from Saban. Obviously, we, we've talked about that you you came from uh, you were in Columbia before you went to Knoxville, and I think last time you were on the podcast we talked about kind of almost four years. Really enjoyed my time there. Enjoyed the people there. Enjoyed the city. Uh, you know, still have a lot of people that I consider friends there. And um, you know, I'm like I said, I'm I'm from the Midwest. It, it sort of uh, head started off covering. Uh, non focusing on non-revenue sports and then helping out with the football coverage uh, before making the transition to sort of all football all the time. But, um, you know, in that non-revenue sports beat, Missouri had had so many successful teams. You know, I covered the, the, the football, or excuse me, the volleyball NCAA tournament appearances. And, and right after I started uh, at the Trib was uh, that team led by Molly, Molly Kreklow. And uh, I think they only lost one match that year. I, I covered that loss to Purdue in the second round of the NCAA tournament. So that was right after I started. So it was a nice introduction to be in terms of covering, you know, big time um, playoff match. And then, you know, the softball teams was good every year. And there was always a lot of drama there with, with early, Aaron Early Wine running that program. And then just covering Jane Cox was such a special opportunity. Um, not, not just because he was a, a great athlete, but I mean, what a, uh, what a unique uh, and remarkable person i mean so many times you just don't get a chance um to meet neat people um, you know doing this job like you know you talk about 
you ask some questions related to, to what's going on on the field and, and a lot of athletes uh, you know they'll treat you all right and then just kind of want to move on to where they got to be after that but you don't really have many fun conversations that that you really remember at the end of the day it's just uh you know kind of just part of the job but every time you talk to Jaden cox i mean that was bound to be a fun conversation um and just the way he uh um, really entertained people on the mat uh, was uh, was was pretty special. Yeah, my my time as the the primary football beat writer was sort of uneventful, uh, covering the the beginning of the Barry Odom era. Uh, it it uh, uh, not not too much stood out from, from that, but uh, certainly uh, a lot of fun moments uh, covering covering those non revenue programs there at Missouri. Who always kept things interesting, um, you know, whether it be Cox's success on on the mat or uh, Aaron Earlywine drama <laughs> uh, that was that was uh, kind of always fun fun to monitor sounds good and I, I know that we're in football season now but it, it doesn't feel like a proper competition unless we kind of talk about COVID and what it's meant in Knoxville and maybe some of the precautions that Neyland Stadium whatever is talking so if you wanted to maybe go through a few of those what the game day experience would look for Missouri's first road game of the 2020 season would be blank yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of traditions, like a lot of places, will be put on hold this year. Um, you know, there's going to be no running through the tee uh, for the Vols, no Vol walk, which is kind of a neat spectacle before the game. I mean, Tennessee fans, you know, it's not uncommon for them to be lining ten deep. Um, you know, as the volunteers walk into the stadium beforehand, it, it's really kind of a neat scene to take in. That won't be happening. Uh, you're going to see fewer boats and yachts on the on the Tennessee River in the Vol Navy. There's going to be, you know, kind of a closer watch on that. And then inside the stadium, you know, Tennessee's planning for a crowd of about 22 to 24,000, uh, which is about one quarter capacity uh, that Neyland holds. You know, and I think Neyland Stadium um, is one of the loudest stadiums in the SEC. I don't think it's the loudest, but I think it's up there. And, you know, so that experience is, is going to be a little bit lacking. You know, I mean, I think I think. Tennessee's stadium this year will probably be as, as loud as any other in the SEC, but still not going to be you know anywhere close to what it what it can be. So uh, certainly uh, a dialed down atmosphere, but I'm kind of interested to. Uh, to take it in and and see uh, you know whether Vols fans can um, you know can still provide a, a pretty good environment there. For any journalist or fan traveling to the game, the socially distant, responsible best thing to do in Knoxville would be blank. <laughs> well, if you have time, get to the Smokies. Uh, it's about an hour from from Knoxville. That might be uh, might be stretching a little bit, but it's certainly if if you can get time, uh, get to the Smokies. Try to get down to the riverfront. I would say you know there's a walking trail or more of a path uh, along the riverfront. So go for a walk or run along the Tennessee River. Um, and you know if you could if you feel safe, if you feel like you can distance. Um, you know, go to go to Market Square or Gay Street, and if weather permitting, you know, try to hit a patio um, because there's certainly uh, a lot of good food and drink down there. I think it's one of the best uh, SEC cities. I mean, I, I don't just say that because I, I live here, but I would put both Knoxville and Columbia in the upper half of the conference in terms of SEC cities. But I think Knoxville's among the top two or three, really. And I think most people that have been here probably would agree with that. So, uh, yeah, certainly weather permitting, you know, there's still still ways to to have fun if you uh you know just be mindful of staying away from the crowds 
All right, once again, that was Blake Topmeyer from the Knoxville News Sentinel. Where can people find you online and follow the opponent's side of things this week? Yeah, we're at uh, knoxnews.com. And then on Twitter, it's B Topmeyer, right? You got it. And, and uh, I know I still got some, some faith uh, still hanging on to their follow from the old days. So I, I definitely appreciate that and, and still enjoy interacting with those folks. All right. Thank you, Blake, for taking the time to join us this week. And I'll, I'll see you on Saturday. Okay. Sounds good, Eric. We would like to thank our sponsors for the Mizzou Sports Podcast. University of Missouri Healthcare. University of Missouri Healthcare is proud to be the official sponsor of MU Athletics. Blue Events. Let Blue create your perfect event. Their passion for food, service, and presentation ensures that you will have a seamless and memorable event, no matter the size. They will work with you to bring your vision to life. Phyllis Nichols, State Farm Insurance. There when things go wrong, here to help life go right. And now back to our podcast. Always great to connect with my Tribune alums, and there's been tons of people who have been on the Mizzou beat here that have been great. Blake is definitely no exception to that. Before we go any further, we have two plugs for this week now going forward. Uh, first is kind of plugging our own Tribune stuff. Follow Mizzou football with the Tribune's Tiger Extra newsletter. Sign up at Columbia Tribune slash Tiger Extra for stories, galleries, and podcasts in your inbox every Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. And now for the national plug. The Mizzou Sports Podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today and the Columbia Tribune. Listen to me, the Columbia Tribune. The Columbia location of Zaxby's is at Stadium Boulevard in North 63. Have you had Zaxby's in the last week, Langston? Uh, not in the last week, but in the last two weeks I have. I can say on top of the their salads and their chicken tenders, make sure to check out their fried mushrooms. Absolutely delectable. How about this for a transition? What do you like more, Zaxby's or Barry Odom? Oh, see, not here. <laughs> here we go with this. Okay, so off air, I was I talked a little bit about how Barry Odom to me, just based off the comment of he had one ranked uh, SEC win. In his four his years of Missouri's head coach, he had one win against a ranked opponent. Correct. It was against number thirteen Florida, and they destroyed them in that game with Drew Locke winning that game and t- picking that defense apart. Yes, but yes, that was the only time they won. Yeah. So I mean, the short answer is Zaxby's by a mile. Um, one of the things that I had a problem with with the Barry Odom tenure was he's the antithesis of what you want now in a college football coach. He did not have the charisma, in my opinion. It seemed like the players seemed to love him, but when you're trying to get recruits in the building and a Missouri program that doesn't have the same type of prestige as other programs in the SEC, I feel like you need a charismatic coach, someone who's active on social media, someone that is very enjoyable in these type of media scrums or in press conferences to really attract players from out of the state and to keep players within the state coming to Mizzou and and you know in short Barry Odom didn't have that type of personality also he did not he was a defensive minded head coach that didn't call defensive plays he gave that up to Ryan Walters the uh, defensive coordinator uh, who was still the defensive coordinator under new head coach Elijah Drinkwitz and so he was a leader obviously for the team but didn't call plays and didn't really do great things on the recruiting trail and you just can't have a coach not do both at this point either you, you have to be a great X's and O guys and be a great play caller whether that's offensive or defensive or you have to be a great recruiter and Barry was neither and that's why I'm choosing Zaxby's right and I covered Barry Odom his last year here and so 
while I, and, and I've said for a while, I don't think Barry Odom got his fair shake at Missouri. And I think as the longer he goes away and the Odom tenure is further in the rearview mirror of just knowing that how kind of divisive that end of the year to 2019 was here, I think he'll be more appreciated for his contributions, not only as the head coach, but, you know, as Pinkle's right-hand man for a lot of his tenure. And yes, I mean, I'm not saying that Barry Odom was a great coach. I don't think he was. I do think he will be a head coach again at the FBS level, maybe even the Power 5 level again in his career. And I'm just saying that I think with the NCAA investigations and just some other things going on, he was in an impossible position to begin with. You, you cannot replace Gary Pinkle here. And he was given the good faith hire to keep the locker room together. And he did that for the most part. I mean, players, I never heard many players basically saying how they didn't like him. He was a very likable guy within the locker room. In terms of the things that, and it's so polarizing the opposite just because of who Eli Drinkwitz is now, and he does all those things well that you've mentioned. Um, it just seems like Barry Odom was given, he, he, and part of the reason Barry Odom, I think, was given a shorter leash than he probably deserved is that the AD that got to grow him and know him in Mike Alden, had retired the AD that hired him and Mac Rhodes is now at Baylor and Jim Stark I think wanted his own guy and you know I, we could probably write a book about the Barry Odom tenure here it was four years and he had four years to turn it around there's no doubt he didn't get it to the level where it needed to go I just don't know if the roadblocks that were set in front of him were voluntary or involuntarily placed there and that's all I'm going to say I mean Yes, you have to look at that 2018 season and basically say that there were opportunities left on the table. There is no doubt you have to look at the 2019 season, NCAA sanctions or not, that there were opportunities left on the table. And the fact that you look back at that post-Auburn 2017 game and that rant he had, and then how they turned around at the end of the season, it's like, wow, there's something to build on here. And it's just taking it to where kind of a level above where Tennessee is right now, kind of what Kentucky did in 2018, that that's where I think they wanted to at least see from the Barry Odom era, and that's why they gave him a good faith contract extension at the end of the 2018 season, despite losing five games that year. I just think that in terms of knowing where this university, university wanted to go, especially in a year where they built the South End Zone, it, it, it just, I think that just one too many things went wrong, and I was looking at this like if Missouri, you know, isn't under NCAA sanction last year, they go to a bowl game. They beat it would have been Kansas State in the Liberty Bowl for second straight year. They win that game. Barry Odom does, doesn't get fired, and so just how many things had to basically had to align for him to be fired? It, it, it seems unfair because it's just a one in a thousand shot that those things are going to happen in a row like that. But they did, and he's now the defensive coordinator at Arkansas. And there's no doubt that he has a great defensive mind. I think, and I think part of the problem with his staff, and I had a great working relationship with Derek Dooley, but I think he never got the job done as offensive coordinator, and therefore that falls on Barry Odom too. Just, la- just even, and one of the biggest things I haven't mentioned on here about that was eye-opening to me about Eli Drinkwitz's press conference on Saturday after the game, and even Tuesday 
he's recognizing, you know, things that went wrong against Alabama. He even said, you, you mentioned it a little earlier, that, like, he has to feed Roundtree a little more. Maybe you said that on recording. I don't remember if you said it or No, we or said not. it off the recording, but I, I'm so happy you brought that up. I'll let you go. I'll let you go. And that's the, kind of the contrast that I was, we were kind of getting with off camera, or excuse me, <laughs> off recording here I'm in the studio. It's just because, you know, I have obviously problems with Barry Odom, but I want to get make two things clear. One, he Not had, professional problems or personal problems. This is just <laughs> athletic, you know, fan. Not a, well, you were a student. As, as a graduate of the University of Missouri and alumni compared to the former head football coach yeah. problems. I mean, but just kind of looking at the football program, I mean, he did not inherit a great program, and he did have obstacles in his way. Um, but, I mean, obviously he didn't get the job done. But kind of going to Drinkwitz, the biggest takeaway from that press conference is the way that he talked about his offensive line and the way that he said it was his fault that he didn't get Roundtree enough touches. Roundtree finished with 14 carries, 67 yards, a 4.8 average uh, per carry. And him just owning up and saying, as a play caller, I've got to make sure that my not my number one running back gets more touches. Beatty went four for 12 yards but did have that 54-yard touchdown pass. And it's clear and it's going to be interesting to see is that just coach speak from Drinkwitz or he actually going to get them more involved against the Tennessee team on Saturday that gave up 89 yards 2.5 a carry to South Carolina yeah and this is not an indictment of Derek Dooley or Barry Odom on purpose but just to hear Drinkwitz kind of say yeah I got to do this better I got to do this better we so there sometimes we didn't hear that at all it's like oh I got to break down film and evaluate what happened you watched the same game I did for 60 minutes coach like you should have thrown the ball to Albert more. You have, you know, you should have gotten the wide receivers more involved. Kelly should have not tried to make, you know, play, be a hero and do that. You just, just, there were some times last year. I can understand how incredibly frustrating it must have been as a fan in 2019, because it's like, okay, I can guarantee you, Barry Odom has lo- lost knowledge more about football than I will ever learn. Guaranteed. Same with Derek Dooley. In terms of football, of this game, I don't compare. However. There are some basic things that went wrong with Missouri football last year that we just never heard and never, you know, we just wanted some empathy and some transparency from when things went wrong, what happened. And we got it from players. I just don't think we heard it from the coaching staff that often. And I think that that was kind of part of the PR problem of the 2019 team. Yes, a lot of things went right. And I had a great working relationship with Barry Odom. I very much appreciated last year when he opened up to me about Ernest Blackwell and in that way uh, that was a, a great talk I had with him and everything and I, and I would love to catch up with Coach Odom another time I'm, if you're listening this is probably not his way too busy and honestly I think one of his least favorite things about being in a public job is that he has to talk to the media so much and I can't blame him for that but kind of just now bringing it full circle back to this year it's it, it's odd kind of the circumstances that got him to go to Arkansas and get fired from here but now I can't imagine even what today is November. Sorry, uh, it is not November, September 30th. And so Drinkwitz's 10 month anniversary of being the head coach is in two weeks. And I can't imagine a time that, you know, well, that Odin was the coach here professionally. It's just been so Drinkwitz heavy in a pandemic. I mean, to reflect on it, it's, it's just odd to look back at how long ago it feels, even though it was, you know, less than 10 months ago that. Odom was the central figure of the team I covered. Yeah, and, you know, I'm going to piggyback off of something you said earlier that, you know, you would get the I've got to watch the film answer and, and post-game uh, pressers. And I understand that from a certain aspect, they probably – there's no problem. They know what went wrong. They want to go back, watch the film, watch it again, and confirm before they talk to the media. I understand that. But 
at a certain point, and what I liked about what Drinkwood said is, no, you watch the same game that I did. He doesn't need to watch the film. I need to get Larry Roundtree the ball more. And I can respect that type of honesty, and I can, to a certain extent, that vulnerability to come out and say that without seeing the film. We all know Barry Odom knew, Derek Dooley knew what was going wrong in those games. They didn't have to go back and watch the film to confirm their thoughts. And so it's going to be extremely interesting to see, oh, is Drinkwitz just saying this? Or is he really, did he really truly mean what he, what he said? And is he going to come out and run the ball more against us, against Tennessee? Because Roundtree getting 14 carries, like you said, it's not acceptable. He's got to get more carries. Yeah. And, and a, a part of on, that is when you fall down big to Alabama, you've got to throw to get the to get yourself back in the game. And, you know, you don't run the want to run the ball and run out the clock like that. Those things I do understand. I'm not here to slam Drinkowitz over, you know, not giving around three more carries and things like that. But especially when you have Sean Robinson and Bazelak really kind of struggling from a holding on to the ball perspective. And we can talk about that a little bit later. They both hold, hold, held, excuse me, held on to the ball too long and caused negative plays that Drinkwitz talked a lot about in the press conference as well. You got to establish the running game and, and, you know, help out your quarterbacks. Yeah, and kind of just to bring this full circle, and I know that I kind of put Langston on the spot because he said that, like, he, he was glad he wasn't the host when Barry Odom was head coach here. So you can't give me that Pandora's box and have me not open it. He knows that, and that's in the book. <laughs> I did, but I thought it would be a productive conversation because I haven't had that conversation with Langston, who, you know, the, 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 the dynamic on this podcast I really like because I, I, when I, how I consider this is I'm very much an insider when it comes to covering the team, but I'm an outsider to Columbia. You can flip that. Both of those things completely different when it comes to Langston. He is an insider when it comes to here. You've lived in Columbia longer. You're a product of the MUJ school, but yet you're kind of still looking from the outside in when you're not on the beat every day. Yes, you're a part of the Tribune family and everything, but in terms of being on the ground, you know, you're still getting used to kind of that atmosphere. So I thought it would be an interesting conversation from there. And just to bring it full circle, Langston mentioned it there, you know, just hearing Trinkwood say that, I'm like, wow, that's 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 different. And so not that I understand why Barry Adam wanted to do that. And he was definitely more methodical in his approach. And maybe there's something to be said, because that's what Nick Saban does, too, that it works. But there's also something to be said about being transparent and working your angle public relations-wise that Drinkwitz seems to know as good as any coach in this league. I mean, yes, he's not as exuberant as Mike Leach or has had the rants like Elaine Kiffin in the past, but he seems to kind of at least know what he's doing. I think I don't think Drinkwitz will ever admit it, but he kind of likes being in front of the camera. He's telegenic in a, in a great way. So, And, and kind of just to respond to that, you cannot behave like Nick Saban without winning just like all of the Bill Belichick disciples or coaches off his coaching tree when they go to their next place and they want to act and behave in the same way that Bill Belichick does it doesn't work because you don't have that coaching pedigree you don't have that that winning that is associated with your name that allows you to act in that certain type of way but let's talk less about yeah. Barry Odom and let's move on to, to uh, yeah. preparing for this it can be game. a long episode thank <laughs> you for listening if you're listening with us but uh, kind of going into the week two SEC slate Missouri Tennessee I gave you I gave you my pick Langston do you come in the kind of the same range I do with with Missouri will cover but lose definitely uh and the uh picks that we're having on the Tribune in uh Saturday's edition of the paper that's a nice little plug there I would definitely will have uh Missouri covering in that game let's go down the rest of the SEC slate here I mean I've already turned in my picks for so I can't be influenced by anything you say to be fair with the uh college ball pick where Langston has a one game lead over me in uh second place uh, and then the rest of the staff's kind of behind us somewhere. Uh, but going on, South Carolina, Florida, Florida f- favored by 17 and a half. 
you know, Gators, I think, are now the third-ranked team in the country in the AP poll. That's crazy for a team that might not even win their division. You know, with how South Carolina looked last year how Flor- and how Florida looked last week, 17.5 might be a little small. Uh, you agree or disagree? I've got Florida covering in that, and then I've also got Alabama covering against Texas A&M on Saturday as well. And I'm only beat Vanderbilt last week by five. I got to go Alabama after seeing them in person and seeing, you know, you only scored 17 points against Vanderbilt. Come on. Uh, Ole Miss, Kentucky. I thought this was the most interesting pick of the week to me is that we still don't know what a Lane Kiffin Ole Miss team is. And Kentucky did not look that great against Auburn. However, Kentucky still has a lot of potential left. I, I pick Kentucky to cover and win by at least a touchdown, but... I've got Ole Miss plus six and a half um, in that game. Just didn't really see enough from Kentucky's offense to make me think they should be favored by nearly a touchdown. Lance Kiffin offense was fun to watch in the, end of the first weekend of the season, so got Mississippi covering in that. Probably the second hardest pick for me was Auburn, Georgia. Um, I actually took Auburn to you know uh, cover here uh, at plus six and a half. Reason being. You know, these games between these two are always close. Georgia didn't look all that impressive last week, even though they won by 27 over Arkansas. I think they had five points at the half. And with, an, with a veteran defense like Auburn, with a, you know, with, with, the, with some, some of the talent they have, I think that if Georgia makes the same mistakes for a second week in a row, even though I'm pretty sure they'll get JT Daniels back this week, Auburn would capitalize where Arkansas could not. That's why I had to take uh, Georgia in this. Is JT Daniels will be active, and I think if he plays, you throw out the offensive tape that the Bulldogs had against Arkansas. It's a completely different team with JT Daniels at area quarterback. This is a deceivingly tough pick, probably third right in a row. LSU favored by 20.5 at Vanderbilt. It's just too early in the season to trust Derek Mason, even at home. LSU did have a disappointing performance last week. It was the first national defending national champion to lose their first game of the next season since, I think, Michigan in 98. But it's just too early to trust Vandy at home. I think LSU scored 66 in Nashville last year. I went LSU by at least three touchdowns here. Vanderbilt uh, has no chance at covering this in my mind. Uh, Bo Pelini is not going to allow his defense to give up 600. Uh, I believe it was 600 passing yards again uh, this weekend. LSU bounces back with a statement game at Vandy. Yeah, and his Mississippi State debut, KJ Costello, passed for 623 yards, SEC record. I forget whose record that previously was. It might have been Tim, no, Chris Leak at Florida. But I might be completely wrong about that, actually. Uh, and kind of going into the last pick here, we have Mississippi State favored by 18 against Arkansas. This was one of the easier picks. If KJ Costello has half the performance he had against LSU, I see them covering here and winning by at least three touchdowns. I know Vegas knows what they're doing, but 17 and a half seems uh, too small or too little against an Arkansas team that really struggled against Georgia that them themselves really didn't look that all that great last week. The other three picks in the Tribune this week are Virginia Clemson, Navy Air Force, and Memphis SMU. We don't have to talk about that because it's not the SEC, but I did take SMU, Navy, and Clemson. I've got, we'll go with Clemson, Air Force, and Memphis. All right. Well, we picked enough different there, and uh, shout out to Gabby Velasquez. uh, I I put a Memphis game in there for her, uh, our digital editor. So, yeah, that's kind of what's happening this week. Uh, It'll it'll be an interesting week in college football. We'll see if the play is kind of improving. A lot of people had said that we expect kind of a sloppier way of playing. I didn't really see sloppy. I just saw, you know, misery being out executed by Alabama. So 
it will play improve in week two now that they have some film and i think that now that Drinkwitz has had 60 minutes to break down film what's different and does missouri come out with a little foot in their step knowing they're not playing alabama that'll be kind of the most interesting question going into this game, tennessee game yeah it's interesting because coach Drinkwitz talked a little bit in the presser about um just moving jalen knox all over the field and uh, the type of motion that he wants to get different looks against the defenses and that looked clean against alabama it was just really some of the decisions from john robinson again just holding on to the ball too long so from a kind of continuity um consistency standpoint from missouri Missouri they looked fine it wasn't really sloppy in my opinion the defense will look better against Tennessee um so it's exciting and this is the first real test I mean I hate to call any game you know a preseason or a warm-up game but you know against Alabama you have to kind of temper your expectations if you're a Missouri fan this is the first real game and this is the first time you should judge uh coach Rinkowitz on the outcome Sounds good. And we actually didn't talk about a lot about the quarterback, which was the biggest issue going in last week. So we'll touch on that before we end this episode. Sean Robinson did start, played every series but two. Uh, Trinkwood said in his Tuesday press conference that the plan was always to give Connor the first series of the second quarter, and I guess he gave him the last one too. Uh, and he said he plans on playing two guys from here on out. We'll see if that works. Um, I think in a, in a non-pandemic season, it'd be the wrong move. This season, who knows? You know, and that's kind of the interesting thing is it might still be the wrong move, but it, if there's a season where it might work, it probably is the season when you're one test away from giving a guy 100% of the snaps. Yeah, my biggest takeaway from the game was Sean Robinson was a little bit more accurate with his passes, but it was clear that Connor Bazelak was definitely more mobile and felt more comfortable moving within the pocket there in the second half, especially in the final drive where he scored in the last seconds. When you have the offensive line that Missouri does, you got to be mobile, and I think that Sean Robinson definitely wanted to move around with his feet outside of the pocket. So we'll see how much rust he has going into uh, week two. It's still There's still an, an order there on the depth chart uh, it could be either one starting it likely will be sean robinson but there's still an or for the number one line there the or between larry roundtree and tyler Beatty went away larry roundtree is now the clear starter at running back um no other changes on offense still no clear starter at left tackle even though it was zeke powell for the entire game against crimson tide or tight end daniel parker jr got a majority of the snaps nico hay got some uh, on defense not that many changes uh, the or between Chris Turner and Isaiah McGuire still there at the right defensive end position. The only other change on defense is there's an or added in the middle linebacker spot. Devin Nicholson got the start against uh, Alabama, but now it's him and Cameron Wilkins who could start against Tennessee. Cameron Wilkins was the guy who first originally did replace Cale Garrett last year, started against Ole Miss and then Vanderbilt. But the Kentucky game on, it was Devin Nicholson who started in that spot. It could be either one of them. They basically shared all of the snaps against Alabama anyway. So we will see kind of what Drinkwitz goes with depth chart wise, but he's sticking with a lot of the guys. I guess the only other change I can see from here is the insertion of Trajan Jeffcoat, who left the team last year. We never got a clear explanation as to why. Uh, entered the transfer portal, but then as to returned to Missouri and actually got a sack at the end of the fourth quarter last week, uh, along with Trey Williams getting one, but he is behind Trey Williams on the depth chart. This is going to be a long episode, Langston, but anything else before we uh, get out of here? Uh, no, I I, I guess uh, I will end just the way we usually do. Thank you, people for, of Columbia or wherever you're listening for wearing your mask and staying socially distanced whenever you go out. All right, for Langston Newsom, I'm Eric Blanc. Thanks for listening to this week's Mizzou, Mizzou Sports Podcast. We're going to keep that in there because I don't feel like retaping it, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.
just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.